this plagues almost every epidemic or pandemic I've ever studied, is that you see internecine battles between different levels of government, you know, city, state, and federal, or federal and international. You see sniping and, and delays and political tactics. Hi, I'm Joanne Silberner, a features editor at the BMJ. I've covered health and medicine for nearly four decades. There's never been anything like the new coronavirus. You're listening to the first of four podcasts on COVID-19 in the U.S. We'll be talking about testing, treatment, healthcare, what it's like to be a frontline worker in America, and more. BMJ has covered some of this already. The lack of PPEs in the U.S., how the pandemic has affected cancer care, access to abortion, and medical research. Today is History Day. Does history count as a non-pharmaceutical intervention? Can an American physician with a love of history make a difference? And are policymakers and health planners in the U.S. giving history its due? With me today is Dr. Howard Markell. Hi, Dr. Markell. Hi. Dr. Markell did his training at the University of Michigan and the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He also has a doctoral degree in history from Hopkins. Today, he's a professor of pediatrics at Michigan, as well as professor in the history of medicine. Dr. Markell, you've written books on quarantines and epidemics. You've advised policymakers. You were also part of a team that did the medical and historical work that first showed the value of flattening the curve. So let's start there. Tell me about the history of the concept flattening the curve? Well, um, I had written quite a bit about quarantines and epidemics and was about to uh, hang up my spurs and (laughs) write a completely different book. When I got a call, it was July 3rd, it was just before the July 4th weekend of 2005, and my secretary said, well, uh, Dr. Markell, the Pentagon is on line seven. (laughs) That shook me a bit because that's not a regular call that I expect, especially before 4th of July. And it was um, somebody who worked for the uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, a man named Cleet D. Giovanni, who uh, was a very interesting physician uh, who worked on uh, threats, uh, the fear of pandemics, the threat of pandemics, and what would the armed services do uh, if we were struck with a terrible pandemic. And they're specifically thinking about avian influenza, H5N1. And he wanted me to study what were called escape communities in 1918. These were communities that basically shut themselves off to uh, any uh, entrance or exit. They closed their schools, there were no uh, public gatherings, uh, trains were stopped and so on. And they were very small, isolated places that could do that and in fact, They had no cases of flu and no deaths from flu in 1918, as long as they kept those doors shut. When I was presenting that data at a big meeting that the Defense Department had with a lot of stakeholders and uh, public health officers from the federal, state, and local levels, um, I I had a nice conversation with Marty Citron, who is the director of uh, quarantine and global migration at CDC, and who's been a friend and colleague for years. And we both said almost the same thing at the same time, that the real study would be looking at American cities during 1918 and 19, because they all did something in terms of what we're called now, 
non-pharmaceutical interventions or social distancing measures. So we looked at, you know, all the cities in America did precisely that, but they didn't all do them in the right order or early or, or they did them late or there was chaos in terms of the management or the administration of those cities' responses. So we wanted to look at these measures and what worked and what didn't. And so with the power of 10 or 12 historians, which to me was like a Manhattan project of history, because when I <laughs> do a project, I work alone. I write a book and I work on it myself. And they, they scoured the country for all sorts of things in these cities, you know, newspaper accounts. We got uh, two newspapers, a Democratic and a Republican newspaper, as they were very obviously uh, aligned back then, um, day by day from September 1st of 1918 to uh, mid-April of 1919. We uh, captured uh, as many federal, state, and local reports and documents that we could get. And we actually found, of all places, the basement of the New York Public Library, the U.S. weekly census report that had 43 cities. That's why we studied 43 cities, but it was one source of data week by week, how many cases and deaths each of those cities had from influenza. And we knew there was a lot of pushback on these uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions by the vaccine people, by the drug people, and so on, for, for good reason, too, because as we're finding out now, they're incredibly disruptive. And oh, you know, there, there was pushback then or pushback oh, now? Oh, yes. Yeah, then. There's pushback then. Oh, the whole time we were doing the study, there were people, uh, <laughs> one guy said, uh, uh, I don't like their methods after we uh, gave a public presentation when we hadn't even designed the methods of the study yet. Oh, oh so you were getting pushed back as you were doing your study. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There are people who were mad because they didn't get the study. There are people who represented the vaccine industry or the uh, antiviral industry. And, you know, I didn't know this before I got to Washington. I was rather naive. You know, it's like, I, I just said, well, I'm the historian. I'm, you know, it's, it's like Jimmy Stewart going to Washington, you know. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, there are, people have uh, different goals and are paid to support those goals. And um, a lot of people think, and probably rightly, that um, such big projects um, are a zero-sum game. So if you fund non-pharmaceutical interventions, for example, uh, you won't fund the uh, antiviral lane as much yeah. or you won't fund the vaccine lane. So it gets to be... Uh, very uh, warlike, and it was. It was. It was incredibly stressful. And um, what did you find? Well, what we found, and we used, you know, really great uh, statisticians at the CDC, and combined with our historical work at the uh, University of Michigan, so it's a really neat, you know, group of people. That cities that acted early, which makes sense, you have to act before the virus has spread uh, and reached an inflection point. Who? the cities that layered their responses. So they did more than one NPI at a time. So they would do, you know, quarantine and isolation with school closures or all three of them at the same time. And those that did them early layered and for long durations, because, you know, you're only hiding from the virus. And there's hundreds of millions of people then, just like today, uh, who are susceptible to that virus. And once you stop hiding, once you open the doors, you may well meet that virus and get sick. So uh, early, layered, and long, those cities had far better uh, morbidity, that means cases, and mortality, deaths, uh, numbers than those cities that did not, or those cities that didn't do anything, or those cities that acted late, 
or some cities that did all the above and their mayors were fighting with the health commissioner and the health commissioner was fighting with the governor or what have you. So you had to have good leadership as well, but that was obviously harder to quantify. You could, you could do qualitative analysis, but it was harder to measure. And so that's what we found in uh, 23 of our cities, which we call the double humped cities. And these were cities that acted early and did their measures. And then the natives got restless and the health commissioners lifted the brakes. And within seven or 10 days, the cases went back up. And then they put the brakes back on and the cases went down. And that's fascinating to me because these cities back in 1918 were acting as their own control group. So when the measures were on, cases went down. When the measures were off, cases went up again. What you and your colleagues showed was that the curve could be stretched out. It could be flattened. It could be flattened, which is a great idea because you don't want everybody going to the hospital at the same time. And hopefully, if you flatten it long enough, maybe the virus will go quiescent and go away and you can resume life. And today, in our modern era, uh, unlike in 1918, we're hoping that scientists can come up with, uh, you know, medications or therapies or better still, a vaccine that can immunize us against it. So it buys you time. So how did flattening the curve make it into the modern pandemic, this one? Well, it was part of the uh, pandemic preparedness documents that were you know, produced by the CDC, and that had just been re-updated uh, in late 2017. So the sources were there, and people knew, you know, in the know, knew that work. It was pretty widely reported on and uh, discussed uh, in the public health world, in the epidemic world. Uh, there were many stakeholder meetings, so it was not unknown. And then when it came up one day, when Deborah Burks uh, was uh, talking about flattening the curve. Deborah Burks, she's one of the physicians on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. I think that was in February or maybe you know, very early March and had that, that cartoon that we had been using. I, I just fell out of my seat laughing. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I've seen that before. I've seen that before. And I was just delighted that they were applying our work. So, I mean, this, you know, and my colleague Marty Citron says this very well. He's just a terrific patriot and public servant. And this was not a me project. It was a we project. We were all really and still are really involved in preventing bad things happening to people. And so as a physician, it's, it, that's, that's where it's all about. You know, I mean, to have the opportunity to help save lives. And I'm, I'm, this I know, it does do that if we do it right. To this day, as we're seeing now, social distancing measures that are really uh, based on that evidence base because the uh, U.S. CDC uh, pandemic preparedness planning beginning in 2007 and it was updated again in 2017, is based on that foundation of evidence that we helped provide uh, with uh, Marty Citron's group at the CDC. So that, that, that's been very exciting and gratifying to me as a scholar, and at the same time, very horrifying as a doctor, as a father, and so on, because, you know, we would only meant to do these things in worst case scenarios. And frankly, this is one of those. Well, so that's the, that work, that idea of flattening the curve really did catch on. It was, we learned from history. 
Yeah. Are, are there examples now where there's things in history that we're ignoring, that we're not learning from? Yeah. Uh, one thing in particular, and, and this plagues almost every epidemic or pandemic I've ever studied, is that you see internecine battles between different levels of government, you know, city, state, and federal, or federal and international. You see sniping and, and delays and political tactics that only harm the efforts to contain or mitigate an epidemic disease. They, they never really act in favor. And we also have seen uh, communities that have worked in a very cooperative way and they've had much better results. What's and, an example of one of those? Well, in 1918, for example, in St. Louis, which had oh, the third best record in the United States at the time, uh, they had an incredibly talented uh, health commissioner named Max Starkloff. In fact, there's a, a hospital in the Washington University collection of hospitals named after him. And... Um, he was just very good at working with the mayor and with the uh, board of education and with the people in terms of communicating on a daily basis and uh, um, reviewing what he was doing and what uh, what was changing and so they had a really really effective uh, public health uh, uh, approach to influenza in 1918 there well, are other that's the answer to that does history make great men or do great men make history. He was a great man who made history. But why wasn't that lesson of cooperation, of following a leader who knew what he was doing, why hasn't that, why didn't that have any traction? Hmm. Well, I think every leader I've ever encountered uh, from the university level to the federal government level, have all spoken and waxed eloquently on the virtues of leadership. But when push came to shove, not all of them practiced what they preached or were frankly very good at it. It's, you know, a, a good administrator, a good leader is, is as rare as a good doctor or a good writer. You know, it's a, not everyone can do it, even though <laughs> I've met an awful lot of people in my career who think they can do it. And um, so it's easy to tell a leader, you know, you need to have a good leadership, you have to do this, you have to do that. It's very different how it plays out. And currently, uh, you know, we have a, a, a president who uh, doesn't really take advice all that freely. There is um, a suspicion of expertise, not only by uh, people in government, but by a lot of people, uh, you know, in the electorate uh, that uh, call this a pandemic instead of a pandemic and have conspiracy theories that this is somehow the deep state's uh, way of controlling the American people and, and other really nonsensical things. But it's very hard for a scientist or a believer to convince a non-believer of the rightness of their path. And so uh, a lot depends on personnel. And I think we have right now, um, you know, uh, one of the reasons it's a worst case scenario is that we're having incredible battles at the federal and state level. There, that is amplified by social media and the internet in ways that it never was in the past. So let's say there was a president who didn't like a governor in 1918, he would send a telegram or say or a phone call and that would be the end of it. But now when you tweet it to, you know, 
X million people, it becomes the headline on, on the newscasts or the 24-7 news shows and so on. So uh, it's not helpful. The flow of electrons has allowed an atomization, a balkanization of how information is spread. So you can find the news source that you most like uh, or most agrees with your worldview. And there's this odd concept that is just very loud and very amplified that I am entitled to my own facts. And I can tell you, you know, it all sound like an elitist or a snobby professor or what have you, but we're not all entitled to our own facts. We're entitled to our own opinion. But facts are different. There's no model going back for all these things happening at the same time because of this new information availability. So you might have seen a leadership problem in one place or another. You might right. have seen um, resistance or conspiracy theories in one place or another. But this new uh, omni-communication system that we have going is really complicating things. Yes, that's exactly right. So I can give you examples in 1918 of communities that sued their mayor over the closure of bars or something like that. But I like that, that omni-communication, it's just so sweeping. And it, it connects people who previously may have never had the opportunity to communicate with one another. Uh, but even these, you know, these state house protests, like they're almost every day in Lansing, Michigan. And I can't think of a better place to contract an easily transmitted respiratory virus than standing in the lobby of a building with a hundred other people who are shouting and screaming. I mean, it just boggles the imagination <laughs> that people would do that. Um, and, and there are people who don't believe the virus is deadly. You know, there's, you know, I, you know it, it's, it's quite incredible how uh, this bad information has spread. I, I think it's still a minority of people. I think they're loud about getting their opinions expressed. But I've been rather impressed, not only in my, my own city of Ann Arbor, Michigan, but in the state of Michigan and speaking with colleagues in other states, how well people are doing with social distancing measures and are doing the right thing because this is, after all, socially mediated disease. It's a contagious disease. Well, getting back to history then, and what's complicating the use of history today is that there's no example where you had all this com communication going back, you know, being available and trading of information and trading of misinformation. Are there other things about the current pandemic that where you can't use history? Like I'm thinking, for example, of has there ever been anything that spread this quickly and quietly? Yeah. yeah. What, what other parts of this pandemic are immune to historical knowledge? Well, no, nothing's immune to historical knowledge, but historical knowledge is not predictive. Um, it's advisory. It's one piece of data among many. We've had world pandemics of cholera, for example. There were four great pandemics during the 19th century. Of course, they were spread mostly by steamship travel, so it took longer to get from one place to another. There have been influenza pandemics before, most notably the 1918 one, but in 1957 and 1968. What's interesting about this one is, A, it's a novel virus. It's an emerging infection that we don't know much about. It's also very easily transmitted. But of course, germs have always traveled, but now they travel by jet plane. So you can see that before Wuhan was shut down, 
and the other 14 cities, and then even most of China was shut down back in uh, late January. Some 5 million people left, and you can look at vector maps of how coronavirus traveled to other parts of China and also to other parts of the world. And similarly, people travel in places that they never did before and can do it all in under 24 hours. And very few flights, by the way, international flights are direct from point A to B. There's often a stopover point uh, between them uh, or maybe two or three. So it's very easy to spread these diseases today compared to 50 years ago. I was going to ask you what kind of grade history should get as a non-pharmaceutical intervention in this place, but you've just said that history is never predictive. It's, it's advisory. So maybe yeah. the question should be, how are historians going to look back on this? Is it too early to say? Oh, they're going to have a great time. Uh, <laughs> there's going to be doctoral dissertations <laughs> lining up to be evaluated. And a lot of, by the way, there are groups, including here at the University of Michigan, that are gathering electronic data and social uh, media and stuff to create, just as we created a 1918 influenza archive uh, at influenzaarchives.org, if you're interested, um, to try to create and save the, the, the ephemera of this one. Um, I think there are a variety of ways you could study this epidemiologically, economically, how we have a global economy. So we do business with just about everybody in the world, and it's very give and take, very interactive. Um, the issue of concealment, uh, China concealed information uh, from others for at least four to six weeks. Uh, we're always a step or two behind a microbe, but there's no need to give it a running head start. And I think that did happen. Um, various arguments going on here in the United States, um, the role of the WHO. I mean, there's a, a million subjects that can be covered. I think this will keep historians of epidemics busy for quite some time. That was Dr. Howard Markell, an American physician and historian. For more of our COVID-19 coverage, check out bmj.com coronavirus, where you can find all of the BMJ's coronavirus coverage available for free. We're doing other COVID stories in the podcast. Check the new coronavirus data in our Talk Evidence episodes and how staff are coping in our well-being ones. I'll be back doing more U.S.-themed podcasts, too. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, I'm Joanne Silberner, and thanks for listening. <laughs>